16 tongues. That ring a bell to anybody? Where are our musicians? 16 tons, written by Merle Travis, recorded by Tennessee Ernie Ford, became one of America's most popular songs in the mid-1950s. People seemed to identify with this coal miner's lament about feeling trapped and unable to change his situation, no matter how hard he worked. Coal miners often lived in company-owned houses and were paid in script, coupons that were only valid at the company store. Even if summoned to heaven, one miner said, he couldn't go because he owned his soul to the company store. The sense of hopeless resignation may help us understand just a little bit the feelings of the Hebrew people during their 400 years of bondage in Egypt. When Moses told them about God's promises to release them from slavery, guess what? They didn't listen to him. Because, Scripture says, of anguish of spirit. Let that sink in. They couldn't believe him. They didn't listen to him. And the news that he was sent by God to deliver to them was the best news of all. But they didn't listen because of anguish of spirit. If you study that phrase, the concept of the words, it literally means that our, our, our soul, our spirit is torn asunder because in our mind we're dwelling on one thing and our body is realizing the conflict and there's some little space in there for our spirit to begin to move and to unite these together and turn them over to the Lord. In other words, you could say that they were so far down they couldn't look up. If you were here then, Pastor Chris took us through the life of Joseph a while ago and a delightful and wonderful study as he looked at the life of Joseph from the boy with a coat of many colors to the brother betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. And you know the story. Chris did a fantastic job of laying that all out in the various steps. But the key that we took away was that God knew from the time Joseph was born that he had a purpose and he had a plan for Joseph. And that was a plan to deliver the nation of Israel from a famine that would come way down the road from his birth. So throughout those hardships and throughout the turmoils, God was just moving Joseph into a place where he would be in the right position at the right time to effect the provision for his people up in Israel. And he brought them down into Egypt after he had been raised through uh, false accusations and imprisoned and the and the, the, the sense of hopelessness of being sold out by his brothers. And yet, all of a sudden, the powers that were there in Israel, I mean in Egypt, recognized in this man a gift, a calling to interpret dreams and prepared them. And so he had them lay up provisions for years before the famine. And then, of course, the rest of the story goes that the, the family came down to, fam to uh, Egypt. No clue that Joseph was alive much less that he was the Pharaoh's right-hand man in providing those supplies. But as we look at that and step away, we realize that that was a highlight in the life of Israel. They had gone from the famine and seeing not only provision, but the, the glorious splendor that was poured out on them because they were Joseph's family. You know, it pays to know somebody, right? We've heard that. And yet, we had a change of the king, and a new Pharaoh came to Egypt. And that Pharaoh didn't know anything about Joseph. He didn't know anything about his history. He didn't have any respect for him. 
And so with that, Joseph had died and time is gone. And the Egyptians began to worry about the increase in the number of Israelites. They were, they were multiplying and multiplying. And when you are in power and struggling to hold on to power, you have to be aware of any and every threat to that power. And when the people who are your slaves are beginning to outnumber you, and you realize what a close-knit group they are, they saw the threat, and so they began to enslave them and put them into bondage. And they didn't treat them nicely. They treated them like dirt. And so the years go, and 400 years pass. Think about that. That's probably what, about... 20 generations easily, if you count 20 years to a generation. So you have 20 generations of people, most of which have never known freedom, most of which have never understood why they're in the situation they're at. They've never had the relationship with God that Joseph had, and so they are oppressed, and they're in bondage, and they're beaten down, despondent. And so God raises up Moses. Again, another whole story. Chris, you can do that one down the road, do a whole series there. But we meet Moses in a little basket in the bulrushes, and then we see him taken into the Pharaoh's home. Interesting, isn't it, how God used the Pharaohs, the greatest enemy of God, used the Pharaohs to deliver God's people. We know that God is mighty when we see that happen. And so, of course, Moses runs away after he loses his temper and murders somebody because of the way that person was treating his fellow man. And he runs and he hides in the desert, but God, he can't hide from God. God goes to him in the burning bush and says, Moses, i got a mission for you. you got to go back to Egypt. Now, he's found a wife, and he's happy being a shepherd, but God's saying, no, no, you're going to go back. You go to Pharaoh. You have this message. You take it to Pharaoh, and you say, let my people go. And Moses is like, uh, hmm, but, but God, I don't think I can do that. And God admonishes them, and you can read it. Start with Exodus 1 sometime this week and read the first five chapters. I can't go through all that this morning, but you can get caught up real quick. And you'll see that. So as we look at that, we want to begin just for a moment that picture of redemption that we see. And and I think that we don't usually see redemption and salvation as we know it and understand it when we read the Old Testament. But it's there. Because the first promise of salvation comes to us in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And God had already made a provision for the fall when humans would fall. They would sin against God and fail him. And so we see here in Exodus that picture that Christ has accomplished. God delivered the nation of Israel from bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh's role. He did this to form a holy kingdom in the land he had promised, going back to Abraham. And in the Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read these words that tie together. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. You get that? Jesus Christ came to set us free from bondage and to deliver us and to forgive us of sins. So the first Exodus, which is what we find the whole book of Exodus is named after, uh, was a picture of the second and greater Exodus that accomplished by Jesus Christ. Well, it's no secret to you, and I'm not telling you something you don't know, but we are living in troubled times. We are surrounded by people who are struggling from any number of things, and in countries and cultures and whole nations are struggling. And it is easy for us to take our eyes off Christ and to focus on the struggle. 
And hopefully we learn very quickly that when we do that, the struggles don't go away. They intensify because that's all we're thinking, that's all we're experiencing, and therefore it just multiplies and our tunnel vision just gets smaller and smaller. We don't have time to look at somebody that we love and see them struggling and come beside them and encourage them because we're so inwardly focused on our own struggles. I'm reminded of the old proverb, when you're up to your neck in alligators, it's hard to remember that your job was to drain the swamp. Well, years ago, I was in just situation, and Gary, you'll appreciate this. I had just completed my second training jump down at Fort Benning, Georgia, when it was still Fort Benning. And one of the instructors approached the whole group and called out to have two volunteers from the state of Maine or New Hampshire. We look around, and there were only two of us there that were from Maine or New Hampshire. (laughs) So that's how you get volunteered. So he said, come on, leave your parachutes, come on and get in the Jeep. So I thought, well, that's pretty good. I don't have to drag my parachute off the drop zone. They took us over to the end of the drop zone where there was a humongous culvert going under the road, and it was there to drain the swamp on one end of the, of the drop zone. And there's like four or five other instructors there, and they said, come on, guys, get your boots off and jump in. A beaver had dammed up the entire culvert, and so it was causing that water to drain back, or to, to back up on the drop zone. He said, get in there and start working Uh, busting the dam free. Well, you know, we're two old country boys and not afraid of hard work and dirt. So we get in there and we're working to pull those branches out and all of a sudden we hear this boom, boom. We look and there's one of the instructors on a little john boat about 25 yards behind us with a shotgun. And so we're looking a little puzzled and we ask the instructors what's going on. He said, don't worry about it. He's got your back. He's shooting the water moccasins before they get to you. (laughs) Well, we were from Maine and New Hampshire. The snakes that we have, they're not a problem. Well, needless to say, we had to stay focused that our job was to drain the swamp and uh, trust that he had our back. We got through it, and uh, we worked a little faster. Every time something brushed our leg, we were, you know, hoping that it wasn't what we thought. Anyway, just an illustration of how we can get uh, off track, how we can lose our focus momentarily. This morning, none of us, I think, are literally up to our necks in alligators. I don't see it anyway, but spiritually you may be experiencing that onset of the alligators closing in on you. And those alligators are a variety of incidences and circumstances that come into our lives. They happen to all of us, folks. That old song, you were never promised, I didn't promise you a rose garden. So many many people come to Christ and they think that it's the answer that all of a sudden all of the thorns are removed from the roses and all of the problems belong to those who don't know Christ. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. You find just the opposite. Because you choose to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you choose to be persecuted, you choose to be ostracized, you choose to be, you know, pushed away. And the problems will come from outside as well as those things that we do, our own affliction. So before we look at our main text this morning, just a quick reflection on the background involving Moses. I'm going to read to you just a couple of verses from Exodus 5, kind of getting the stage set. So here is God speaking to Moses after he's been to Pharaoh a couple times. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil (laughs) to this people? That's a pretty brazen accusation to level against the God of creation, isn't it? Why did you ever send me? Now we have a pity party. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he, Pharaoh, has done evil to this people, 
and you have not delivered your people at all. I've read that many, many times, but this time in preparation for the message, I went, wow, Moses, you know that tendency that we kind of have to back away from somebody when they're being a little bit sacrilegious? That's all superstition, by the way, but you know, not the sacrilegion, but the idea that we back away is somehow going to take care of things. But here's what I thought. Here's Moses. He's upset at God, so he has two questions and one complaint. The first question he asks is, why have you done this? So two parts to that. First, Moses is acknowledging that God exists, and he's conveniently there to blame for this, the affliction, the sense that Moses had gone to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh laughed him away. And not only that, but he told all of the managers, all of the foremen, to step up the requirement of producing bricks and things for the work of building for Pharaoh. So they not only did that, they upped the quota, but they also said, and we're not providing you the straw to make those bricks. Now, in addition to that, you've got to go and find your own straw to make more bricks than you did yesterday when Moses went and pestered Pharaoh. That's going to really ingratiate Moses to the people, right? So here is Moses railing against God. Why have you done this? He's accusing God of making things worse for his people. The second question is, oh, that's not enough. He says, why did you send me? Now we're back to another pity party on a scale jacked up. Why did you send me? In other words, Moses hasn't listened to God from the burning bush. He hasn't fully embraced the sense, Moses, I am. I am God. I am sovereign. And I'm calling you. Okay? Moses is not alone in that category, folks. Each and every one of us who named Jesus Christ as our Savior has been called to serve the kingdom of God. Now, you may not solve it, serve it behind a pulpit or in the worship team or what, but listen to me. You have been placed exactly where God wants you to serve him exactly as God wants you to serve. The body is made up of many parts, right, Doc? We have parts that when they work together, we're in good shape. When they don't work together, we have issues. Okay, that's the same thing in the spiritual body when all of the parts that God puts together to be a local church are not functioning, then the problems that we have are magnified because the people that are, are, are meant to come alongside of us and encourage us, they're not necessarily in the best of shape, and so... Where are the healthy people to help those that are hurting? And so we have that. Well, not only did he have those two questions, why have you done this and why did you send me? But then the complaint. Here's the part that's really interesting to me. So in a sense, Moses says God, get this, wasted his time by sending him to address Pharaoh. I mean, God, you know everything. You should know Pharaoh was going to reject him. Why did I have to go through that humiliation? And now the people suffer more, and now they hate me even more. They won't listen to me, and I'm going to take my worms and go home and cry, right? So God answers Moses, but not in the manner that he expected or desired. Folks, when we question God, we're really challenging God's sovereignty and basically, we're demanding that God explain himself to us and justify that explanation. It's one thing to explain it. But now that you've explained it, now you justify it. You convince me why I should accept that. That's quite brazen in my world. So in the midst of our struggles, we can lose sight of God's power and his majesty. But when we do that, we open ourselves up 
to more struggle because now we're not looking to the one who's going to guide us, the one who's going to strengthen us, the one who's going to take us through the trials and tribulations safely and bless us in the long run. We have alienated ourselves by our choosing. We've cut that tie with a sovereign God. And then we can't understand why we suffer as we suffer. If we look ahead to Exodus 17, just to get an illustration of this, we find God using Moses to provide water for people in the desert, okay? They're on a long journey, a lot of people, and you don't have a lot of water in the desert. Pastor Chris has told us over and over again about Israel and about that land. And so it's not any different in any desert, right? So he is told explicitly by God to provide water by striking a certain rock with the staff that God had him begin his ministry with, and then water gushed forth Enough water for all of those people and then some and all the animals. Okay, I don't know how Moses reacted, but I sense that given his affront or his challenge to God earlier, he was probably feeling pretty good, huh? Look at that. Boom, I hit the rock and here's water. So at a late, now this was early on in the Exodus. Now you go later in the Exodus, and again, the people are grumbling and complaining. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they're tired of the one food, the, all of those things. And we heard him and we hear him over and over again. You know what? We were better off back in Egypt. At least we had food. At least we had water. At least, you know, and so on. Have you been there? Have you ever wished that you were somewhere else and when you got there you went, you know what? I was better off. We call that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, right? But is it? It's all in perspective. When you jump the fence and turn around, grass is grass. When you trust God, it doesn't, listen, when you trust God, it does not matter which side of the fence you're on because God is there. God is on the other side of the fence before you jump it. He didn't want you to jump the fence, but he knew you were going to, and so he's there. He goes with you. He will never leave us or forsake us. So in his frustration this time, God told him not to strike the rock, but to speak to it. And Moses is so angry with the people grumbling and complaining and he's probably thinking of every time he has spoken to them and they have defied him and they have ridiculed him and they have given him a hard time and he is so angry that instead of speaking, he strikes the rock not once but twice. Bad move, Moses. Now, God brought forth the water. He took took care of the people. But Moses earned himself the punishment of never going into the promised land. All of this time of recounting to the people God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and on through the generations about the land flowing with milk and honey, Moses will not enter the promised land. Some of you might think, well, that's kind of harsh. Well, back up and think about how Moses is behaving towards God. God means business. It turns out, of course, as you know the story, that not only did Moses not get to go in, but because of the disobedience later in the journey, none of those who were living at that time would see it. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, two generations, if you would. Now, God did give uh, Moses the privilege of going up and looking over and seeing that land, not to to, uh, taunt him, but I think just to say, Moses, that was real. And but for your disobedience and leaders, when we disobey the Lord, it has to be more severe because we are leading the people, representing God. And that disobedience will not be tolerated. 
So now we look at our text. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, and we'll move quickly from here. I'm going to read it, um, and then we're going to look at it verse by verse just quickly. Starting at verse 1, chapter 6, Exodus. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant. We've talked about that this morning, right? I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which we lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And, and there are seven things that he gives them, I will. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So speaking to Moses, the Lord reiterated his present commitment to set the Hebrews free. In verse 1, when the Lord spoke to Moses, he said, Now see, or now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. I think that God started that way to say, you know, we've been talking and you haven't been listening. And I'm speaking again, now you're going to see that what I'm telling you will come to be. I'm going to deal with Pharaoh. That's not your problem. Your job is to drain the swamp. The alligators, that's on me. Wow. How easy is that when you are literally in the midst of those difficulties to say, God, not my problem. Now, what is it that you wanted me to do again? And that's what I'm going to focus on. Sounds a little funny, but that's exactly what God expects of us. Why? Because he knows what he wants to accomplish. He knows what he can accomplish in our lives. And he knows that if we are obedient, it will be accomplished. And he's going to take care of the side issues. I just had a flashback to the shoulder to shoulder a couple weeks ago when we had these little things pop up and yet God had already covered it. And we heard testimony after testimony right here on the stage of people telling about how God had worked and moved in their lives and how they had witnessed much more being accomplished than they ever dreamed possible in the time given. You see, that's just a little tiny, tiny microcosm of the ability of the God who set the universe and the galaxies in motion and holds and sustains that. You see, we've got to get done looking down and inward, and we've got to look up and outward to realize, wow, you know, Lord, I think mighty small my understanding of you must grow. I must decrease. You must increase. So as he's repeated the phrase here, interesting, with a strong hand. I really, I really dug into that because I thought that's interesting. But what I've concluded is that what God was telling Moses he was going to do with Pharaoh 
Not only was Pharaoh going to set the people free, he was going to do it in a mighty way. He was going to do it with arrogance as though it was his idea from the beginning before 10 plagues. Okay, But he not only was going to set them free, but he was going to drive them out of the land. In other words, the, the judgments that God brought upon Egypt got so bad, I'm thinking that the people of Egypt began to complain to Pharaoh like the people of Israel were complaining to Moses. And when you're in that situation, you know, throw in the towel and do your best. And so Pharaoh literally drove them out of the land. He didn't just say, okay, you're free to go. He had said that once and didn't do it and they didn't do it. And then finally, after the 10 judgments, it got through that that God of Israel is stronger and more powerful than I am. And so he drove them out. And they didn't leave Egypt empty-handed, as we know. You read about where all the maidens were to ask their, their, their master, if you would, for, for jewelry and for cloth and things. When you're later, later reading about the building of the tabernacle, you think, well, where did they go? Big box store like Home Depot? Lowe's? Walmart? No, they didn't have those out there in the wilderness. And yet look at the incredible tabernacle that God guided them to fabricate for his worship. So that phrase, with a strong hand, comes back. <clears throat> you will see, you will see, that certainty, what I will do to Pharaoh. Your job is to go and talk. It's my job to bring the effect on Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. So now the time has come for God to demonstrate his omnipotence. Psalm 139, 12 alludes to this when it says, The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, quote, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Basically, Pharaoh is no match for the Almighty. As one man said, your arms are too short to box with God. You don't get into the ring with 28-inch arms against the all-star with 38, 39-inch arms. You just aren't going to do that. Okay? So it's that sense. So God is going to toss Pharaoh aside like knocking a flea off a dog's back. That's the promise. That's not just rhetoric. That's a promise from Almighty God. Uh, to the Jews, that he's going to deliver them. Only God can do that. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Moses had been imagining what God would do, but now he will see what God will do. God will be known by his name, Jehovah. God performing what he'd promised and finishing his own work. He designed his own glory. He said, you will know that I am the Lord. And I believe what he's speaking to is, you don't know what's coming. When I start to unfold my glory and pour that upon Egypt and on Pharaoh, that's when you're going to say, okay, God is capable of delivering on his promises. Are you there yet? Have you lived and experienced enough in your Christian walk that you can say, most of the time, not all, most of the time, I believe that God can and he will in his schedule. That's the last piece that we wrestle with. I know he can, but he's not doing it fast enough. Well, then you don't really believe he can do it because when God does something, he does it correctly according to his plan. God doesn't need to consult Dan Coffin and say, Dan, I'm thinking about a plan for you. What do you think about this? No, God, I think I'd rather do, okay, Dan, I'll listen to that because I don't have a clue about what God is accomplishing or wants to accomplish in the big picture. And so that's why trust is imperative. It's not... A nicety, it is literally imperative that we trust God. I mean, after all, when you confessed him as Lord and Savior, you trusted your eternity into his care. 
You trusted him for where you will spend eternity, and that is to trust that you'll be in the presence of God because of the work that Jesus Christ accomplished at Calvary. That's big trust. But without that cornerstone, without that building block, you're just kind of faltering, and you're looking for that rock every once in a while to bounce off and then come up for air and then go back under again, rather than standing firm on the solid rock. All right, looking forward. Verse 3, down through 6. I'm not going to break all of these out. We could do a whole sermon series on them, but you're going to get the gist of it. Um, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. So there we go. There's three things quickly. In verse 3, he says, I appeared. That's an action on the part of God. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, in verse 4, I also established. You see, God is recounting what he has done that are all precursors to where he's wanting Moses to go to Pharaoh and deliver the message. It's God's message. And if Moses fully trusts God, he's going to stop worrying about how, the, how Pharaoh will see him, about what an inarticulate speaker he is, and all those things that Moses is offering up as excuses. God is trying to get through to him. And then in verse 5, he says, I have heard. So he covers it, I appeared, I established a covenant, and I've heard the groaning of the people. Moses, as much as you're crying to me, have you forgotten how much I love these people? I made an eternal covenant with them. I've promised to protect them and to keep them as a people unto my name. What part of that do you not remember? Obviously, by the way you're talking and challenging me, you have forgotten something mighty important. I've heard the groanings, and I've remembered my covenant. So he, remembered, he established the covenant, he's heard the people, and I, he's saying, I remembered my covenant. I am the Lord. There we go again. So then in verse 6, we go, I will bring you, bring you where? Out from under the burdens. So that's the promise of deliverance from the biggest thing they're complaining about. We are in bondage. We're in slavery. We have an impossible task. They want more bricks made than ever, and they aren't even giving us the straw to do it. So our burden has, in, in essence, more than tripled. Okay? Down, I will deliver you from slavery. I'll bring you all from under the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will, here's the good word, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. How many of you remember the days of uh, S&H green stamps, plaid stamps, maybe some other one? The young people are looking at me like, huh? Okay. Back when you bought your groceries, based upon the amount of money you spent, they had a, a formula and you got a bunch of stamps. And then you got books and you could put, <laughs> Kristen's laughing at me. You heard about this from your parents, okay. All right, you put these stamps in a book and when the book was filled, you might keep filling other books. There was a catalog of things that you could get by redeeming those stamps. Taking something that had no actual value. Every stamp had a little tiny printing that said no cash value. Because you couldn't go spend them anywhere. You could only, oh, this is kind of like the company store, okay? If you want to spend the money you got in stamps, you got to go to the company store, all right? So that word redeem is bigger than just something that we 
when we redeem our bottles. We take the empty bottles that we paid a nickel for, right, deposit, and we take them back to some guy who might give us six cents because he's going to get eight cents for each of them. That's his living. But to redeem something is to take something of little or no value. Ooh. Who was the redemption for? Us. We are the redeemed of the Lord. That means that apart from God, we have no value. Our entire worth is found in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Deal with it. All right. You hear Scott just crept in the back room there. That's a little bit humbling, but it's a whole lot exciting as we get there to realize I'm going to stop focusing on the fact that I was worthless and I'm going to focus the rest of my life on the fact that I am worth so much to God that he sent his only son, not one of 12, but only son to die for me. I mean, I know you've heard this a thousand times, but hear it again. Let that sink in. Me, a worthless individual, taking up space on God's creation, separated from God because of my sin from my birth. And God said, Dan Coffin, I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. And if you will believe that I sent my son Jesus Christ to redeem you, to pay the sin debt that you owe me, the God of heaven, I will cleanse you from your sin. I will make you a joint heir with my son, Jesus Christ, and you will spend eternity with me in the presence of God. I've only preached that 10 million times, not quite, but every time it gets me fired up because every time I'm a little closer to fully comprehending it, okay? That's what you and I are worth to the God of creation. And so when we see that word, I redeem you, we are there. We get it. All right. Verse 7, we pick up, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. So he's taking us to himself, or taking the Israelites to himself, to be a people of his own name. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Not done there. I will bring you into, I'm taking you out of the land of your oppression. I'm going to bring you into the land that I promised your forefathers. And oh, that land is beautiful, flowing with milk and honey. That's the promised land. That's the land that Moses had his heart set on. Abraham never saw that land, but it's his offspring and all down the line of the nation that God said would be innumerable. That's the people I'm taking into the promised land. The obstacles are not all over with yet, but day by day, God is moving them closer and closer to the point that he's leading them. I will bring you, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you, I will be your God, I will bring you, I will give it to you for a possession. You're not going to be a leasee. You're not going to be a sharecropper on God's promised land. It will be to you a possession, a gift from me. I'm not going to put you there and say, if you work that land for 10 years, then I'll give you that land. No, they inherited the land and it was their possession because God, in his great mercy and love, fulfilled his promise. These statements remind us that the Lord indeed is God. And when he says, I will, the promises of God mean just that, he will. Not that he might or he'll try, he will. So let me ask you, what does that mean to you? Getting there. 
Time to look at the clock, right? What does it mean to you and to me? Well, we've already talked about how we first met Moses. You think Moses' mother knew what God was going to do when she put him in that little basket and put him in the river in the bulrushes for the Pharaoh's daughter to find? And that the Pharaoh's daughter, if indeed she knew that she'd find him, that she wouldn't just turn him in and kill him like all of the other Hebrew babies were, boys were supposed to be. I don't believe she knew that. I just believe that a mother's love could not give up her child. Pharaoh had ordered that they all be killed, and the, the, the I guess we call them nurse midwives, they were like, oh man, those, those, those Israelite ladies, man, they, they aren't like everybody else, man. They just have those babies and we don't know it. It's over with. So then he said, well, kill them. Go find them and kill them because I can't have this nation growing in strength. You talk about evil personified in a heart. That is a heart that is beyond hard against God. So now God is telling Moses to face down Pharaoh, delivers people out of slavery. Well, I think that Moses is more like us or we're more like Moses than we ever dreamed of. His journey, to say the least, has been rather unorthodox. Amen? <laughs> I mean, I went through some things, but I sure didn't end up in a river and then in a burning bush and then, you know, all of these things. But that's nothing. God is saying, I'm doing what I do in each of you to bring you to the place that I want you to be. Well, Moses complained it had been nothing but trouble. God says, so what is the problem? You've already got trouble. I'm going to take them out of that trouble. But if you, did, if you don't stop grumbling, you'll never realize it. And so we know God backed it up with a series of statements. He said, I am the Lord, three times. Then he made the seven I will statements that we just read. God loves to make promises. I think in that context, the only thing that God loves more than making promises is what? You're with me, thank the Lord. Keeping them, fulfilling them. We only look at what God hasn't done rather than what he's going to do. Because if God says, I will, it's all done, and we just have to get to the right place and time to see that it's done. See, in our world, we go, it isn't done until I see it. Show me the money. No, it's God said it, it's done, and in the right time, you'll see that. Now, when I have a birthday, my family gives me birthday presents. They do this awful thing, they wrap it up in paper. They hide from me. So I know I have a gift, and the implication is it's something that you will like, but I can't know what it is until it's the right time and they tell me I can open the paper. And then the delight of fulfillment of their promise that they're giving me a gift that I will like is fulfilled. Every day we are looking forward to more and more of God's promises. The ultimate promise is coming back for us someday, folks. How many of you haven't said, even so come Lord Jesus, even so come quickly in the last year? Put my hand down, I have it, I've said it. And yet God's timing is perfect. And the present suffering that we go through is just but a shadow of what we have waiting for us, folks. So we can learn from what Moses experienced. The first step that we have to take, of course, is to believe in God. I've just given you a little gospel message, but let me wrap up by just being very clear. All of the promises of God belong to the people of God, the children of God. But then, potentially, that's everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, not be separated from God for eternity. That's an incredible promise. And I know that it's fulfilled in many. We just had 10 people standing here who bore testimony that they believe that. And the rest of us that are members, we believe that because that's where we stand. 
But maybe you're listening this morning out in TV land or uh, out in the other cafe or you're sitting here looking at me and you're wondering, I've heard this, but I, I, I don't have that. I don't have that peace. Ask yourself this question. Have at any time in your life to this point, have you cried out to God begging him for forgiveness? Asking him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to become your Lord and Savior. If the answer to that is no, and you all know how I feel about asking the why question, but I'm going to say why not. Today is the appointed time. None of you are promised and guaranteed tomorrow. Okay? And so if you're here thinking, well, you know, I, I kind of believe that. I'm begging you. Move from kind of to say I do believe it. And reach out to me, reach out to pastors, reach out to the elders, reach out to somebody and say, help me, help me, help me. I want that. I, I don't want to leave this building this morning without the knowledge that Jesus is my Savior. That I have given my life to him for his possession and I am now a people unto his name. Christians. Followers of Christ. Now let me just tell you, I'm a realist if nothing else. You've just opened up. The invitation for Satan to paint a big red target on your back. I was in sales for a while, and one of the things we had been taught is don't oversell. You get somebody talked into something, and then you keep talking, and you talk them all of it. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I would be remiss if I only preached the glories of the gospel of Christ and salvation as eternal life down the road, and not tell you that a life of following Christ is a life of persecution, of rejection, of separation, of hardship. They did it to Jesus. Why should we think following him is going to make us different? But see, we do the mind games. So when I say to you, if you are not 100% certain that if you died this moment, you would be in the presence of God, you can change that. It starts in the heart of realizing I am a sinner, God, and I don't deserve to call you, call you Lord. But I do believe based on what I keep hearing from the Bible and what Pastor Dan is talking about and the joy that I see in people who are going through suffering. You see people huddled up and encouraging each other, praying, and most of you don't know what's going on over here, but trust me, you get the point. Somebody's hurting and they're being loved. That's the privilege of being part of the family. Now we pray for people that don't know the Lord because we love them too, but my biggest prayer for you is that you will come to that place of repentance that you'll say, Lord, I'm done doing this on my own. All I have to do is look back over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and there's nothing that I can boast about. But to have accepted Jesus Christ at the age of six and to have known him for these last 56 years, whew, I don't even want to think of where I'd be without him. And I hate to think that anybody that I know, anybody that I had the chance to tell about Jesus, I didn't do that. And so that's why we always try to get this part. As God delivered the nation of Israel from bondage in Egypt, so too God wants to deliver you from the bondage of slavery and sin. And it is not a simple thing in that it's easy. The prayer, the motion is easy. But the life that comes with it will be wrought with challenges. But see, as we talked about Israel, God is in those challenges, and he takes us through them. 
from June 15th of last year to June 15th of this year marked a year full of challenges. I'm here by the grace of God. Your love, your prayers, his faithfulness. Pastor Chris shared one time about me not asking why, but what. And so I stand here today to ask you, what is God doing in your life? Stop asking him why. Ask him what it is he wants to do. All right, let's pray. Oh, that will be glory for me when my Jesus I shall see. Thank you, Father, for the honor of breaking your word to these dear people. I pray that it has touched a heart for believers as an encouragement for those that need to become your children, Lord. May today be the day of salvation. I praise you for your word, which is sure and true. I praise you for your love, which is everlasting. I pray for your truth that your promises are already fulfilled, whether we've seen that or not. And so I pray, Lord, that as we wrap up this service, we don't end our worship and honor to you, but rather we begin it in the mission field outside these doors. That we take it to our neighbors, our co-workers, our unsaved relatives, and we implore them to come to know you as Lord and Savior. We ask this, Lord, in faith, believing, and in the hope of your promises, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.